passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Good morning, church. This morning we continue our series looking at some of the difficult issues facing the church. And based off of that video, you can see that we're going to be looking at the prosperity gospel today. Uh, The prosperity gospel is also known as the health and wealth gospel, also known as the word of faith movement. And if you're wondering what exactly this is, I just want to give us a a brief definition as we start this morning. And uh, the the health and wealth gospel is, is essentially this. It is a teaching that God essentially wants us and indeed wills for us, all believers, to be physically healthy, to be materially wealthy, and also to be personally happy. One prosperity teacher, he describes it this way. He says, there are certain laws governing prosperity revealed in God's word. Faith causes them to function. And they will work when they are put to work, and they will stop working when the force of faith is stopped. In other words, what this teacher is saying is if we have enough faith, if we have enough obedience, and if we are faithful enough to God, then God is forced to bless us with money. God is forced to heal us of whatever diseases we may be facing. And God is going to guarantee our personal happiness. If you are not healed, if you are not rich, if you are not happy, then you are not being faithful to God. This is a very personal topic for me this morning. Um, I've shared here before a couple times that I was born blind in my left eye. I had nine surgeries before I was one. Uh, to try to restore sight. None of them worked. And I uh, was left a little bit disfigured um, before uh, I went through a procedure in high school. And uh, in the middle school years, elementary years, I was the butt of a couple jokes. I was uh, bullied occasionally for um, the way I looked, nothing that I could control. And as you can probably imagine, it led to a lot of self-loathing, a lot of questions asking God why. Why did God create me the way he did? What did I do wrong that God was punishing me for the way that I lived my life? It was a really, really tough thing for me. And it was honestly the one thing about myself that I would change if I would have had the chance. Now, by God's grace, when I was in high school, I became a Christian and uh, really just started to eat up God's word. But as a young Christian, I was also pretty immature and was easily deceived by this teaching. I remember beginning to pray that God would heal me. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. Indeed, God's word tells us that we should pray for healing and we should pray with an eager expectation that God will heal us. But I thought that the big difference between my prayers now and the prayers before I became a Christian was that God didn't answer them before because I wasn't actually living like a Christian was supposed to live. And so I set out and committed myself to live in such a way that God would be forced to answer my prayer.
prayers for healing. And so I began giving my, all of my money to the church. I began to serve as a Bible study leader. I began to serve as a leader in my youth group. I began to uh, preach at a local outreach ministry. I began to lead worship at one of the churches in town. I began to pray continually. I read through the Bible like three times in the first year that I was a Christian. I began to fast constantly, all with the eager expectation that I was going to be the kind of person that God would answer his prayers for a miracle. Several times while I was in high school and the first few years of college, there would be faith healers holding revivals in nearby towns. And so my friends and I would go to those different revivals. And and I remember I would spend a week or so in prayer and fasting, preparing my heart to go to these different faith healers with the expectation that God would finally answer my prayers. And every single time as I went to these different healers, and I I use quotation marks there on purpose, I was left with nothing. The prayers didn't work. The the miracles didn't show up the way I wanted. And, And what's worse is that in addition to them not working, I would be told every single time why they didn't work is because I didn't have enough faith. Do you have any idea how damaging that is to hear that it's your fault To hear that not only do your peers reject you, but God has rejected you as well. This all came to a head when I was in college. I went to Northwestern in Orange City, and and I was a part of a prayer ministry uh, that was instrumental in bringing a nationally known uh, televangelist, faith healer, uh, revivalist to town. And I remember before... uh, before the uh, the night that he was there, spending, again, time in prayer and fasting, preparing myself for that night. And I was one of the people that was a part of the setup team, uh, something that many of us can relate to. I was there welcoming people as they came into the door uh, for the evening session. And I was one of the people that was there after everyone left, cleaning up. And just like every other time, nothing happened. There were no miracles that happened with the exception of getting around fire code because there were way too many of us there. And I was left confused and asking God why once more. And soon enough, as I was cleaning up, as I was vacuuming and stacking up chairs, this confusion transitioned into anger when I got to see this person that I had been praying for to come to uh, Orange City to, to start this revival and to bring healing to all these people. As I got to see them personally up front, I became angry because I realized just what kind of person they were. This is a person who had lied about his commitment to pray for a little girl after the service. This is a man who didn't care about any person that he prayed for. He only cared about the money that he received for his little fancy show. And I was mad. But thankfully, by God's grace, that anger didn't lead to bitterness. It instead led to refinement. It led to spiritual growth. I began to ask important questions of why does God uh, govern his creation in a certain way? What does God want 
for his creation. And honestly, all of that that I just shared, it's kind of the background for what we're going to be talking about this morning. Like I mentioned, this is a very personal topic for me. That's why we showed such a harsh video uh, this morning as we introed into this. Because honestly, that sums up the way I feel about this gospel as well, this false gospel as well. It is not the gospel. It is indeed false teaching. It's something that we should be very, very weary of. We as a church are called to cling to the pure, unadulterated gospel of Christ. And I have experienced firsthand the danger, the destruction that this false gospel we're going to be looking at this morning, what it can bring. Crystal and I have spent time overseas and we've seen firsthand the plague and poison that this false gospel is to the church in impoverished nations. Be completely honest, throw all my cards out this morning as I begin. I hate the prosperity gospel. I hate the prosperity gospel. I don't hate those who believe it, who are deceived into believing it. I don't hate those who teach it, but I hate this false gospel itself. There's nothing that makes my blood boil more than when I hear people who claim the name of Jesus preaching this plague and people falling into line. Every time I hear it, it brings up memories of what I've experienced. It brings up faces of those that I know who have been deceived by this heresy. The prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel, it is a serious problem. It's a serious problem facing the church today. It is so utterly damaging to the global church because it preys on the poor and the vulnerable, those that are closest to God's heart, so that the rich can get richer. It is so offensive to God because it takes our eyes off of Him, the God of our salvation, and instead places our eyes on ourselves, on our own desires, on what we want and what we can get out of God. And it misses the most important truth of the gospel, and that is this, the greatest blessing of the gospel is God Himself. The greatest blessing of the gospel is God himself. Yes, at the cross when Jesus came to us, that's the greatest blessing. Yes, but even more so, each and every day, the greatest blessing that God could ever give us is fellowship with him. To dwell in his presence. This morning as we look at this topic, we're going to do so in two parts. First, we're just going to talk about how the word of faith movement, this prosperity gospel, how it perverts the the true gospel. And we're going to look at six ways that it does so. And then after that, we're going to spend a brief amount of time trying to lay out a way forward for us as a church this morning. As we approach God's word, let's, let's take a moment and pray. Father, we are so grateful for your spirit and how your spirit works in our lives and in our hearts. And we ask that that same spirit would be with us this morning. God, we pray that you would come, that you would teach us, that you would guard our hearts, and ultimately that you would help us to fall deeper in love with you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. What we're going to see here is this theology of of the prosperity gospel is not Christian theology at all. Um, This isn't the same thing as last week. Last week, we were talking about men and women and their roles in the church, and and we talked about that being kind of a theological error, 
It's not a salvation error, but issue, but it is a, a theological error. And we, as a church, we have our convictions. We're not going to apologize for those. But we can also say uh, that people who disagree with us are brothers and sisters in Christ, and we can rejoice in that. This morning is not the same thing. This is not just a theological error where we say we agree to disagree. This is wolves in sheep's clothing. This is false teachers leading people astray. This is honestly heresy that leads to damnation, not to salvation. Paul in Galatians, he's he's warning the church about the danger of false gospels. Uh, The danger of gospels that take our eyes off of Jesus, off of his work on the cross, and instead putting our eyes on what we can do for our salvation. And he says this in Galatians 1, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. That's kind of the, the launching point for our discussion this morning as we look at why this gospel, this false gospel is so damaging. And I mentioned that we're going to look at six different perversions of the gospel. The first one is this, just the gospel itself. The gospel itself is perverted by health and wealth teachers, by these prosperity teachers. Now, when we talk about the gospel, we look at the gospel as our only hope. But we might be saying, well, what exactly is the gospel? Romans chapter 3 describes the gospel. It says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul, as he's describing this gospel, lists a couple key characteristics of the gospel. First, he mentions that the gospel says that all of us have sinned. All of us are guilty before God, before a righteous God. Second, he he points out that salvation, this gift of salvation, is found in Jesus. And it is free. It's found at the cross for anyone who would believe. And third, he tells us that the, reason, the way we receive this salvation is indeed through faith. We're going to come back to that here in a moment. But notice how Paul closes here. He closes with the purpose of the gospel. The reason why God has come to save us. He says the reason why God has come to save us is to show his righteousness. To show his righteousness. The gospel is not about you. The gospel is not about me. It's about God. Advocates of the prosperity gospel oftentimes miss or uh, minimize elements of the gospel. They will pass over the cross. They won't mention Jesus. They won't mention judgment or sin. And, And my question to them is, how do you have a gospel if you don't have those things? In an interview with a prosperity gospel teacher... Uh, he was, his, uh, his teaching was being summed up by the interviewer, and he, he says this, God is a loving, forgiving God who will reward believers with health, wealth, and happiness. 
It's the centerpiece of every one of your sermons. To become a better you, you must be positive toward yourself, develop better relationships, embrace the place where you are. Not one mention of God in that, not one mention of Jesus Christ in that. The prosperity gospel teacher, in, in response to this question, just says, that's just my message. That's just my message. No mention of Jesus leaving God out of the gospel and placing humanity at the center of the story. One scholar describes the, pro- the prosperity gospel this way. He says, In the prosperity gospel, believers dictate the terms of their lives to God as they seek after health, wealth, and other forms of personal flourishing. The thinking appears to be, if I do good things, and if I obey God, and if I try my best for the purpose of God, then I will get things from God. The prosperity gospel teaches believers to depend on their own works, thoughts, and efforts in order to succeed at life. Notice that last line. The prosperity gospel teaches believers to trust in their own works and efforts in order to succeed at life. At its core, the prosperity gospel, this false gospel, is works righteousness. The way that we earn a good standing before God is we work for it. You see, this false gospel takes God, rips God out of the center of the gospel, and it places us in its place instead. If you want to know how to identify a prosperity teacher, ask, where do they turn your eyes? They turn your eyes to Jesus or they turn your eyes to the world? Same thing with a gospel-centered teacher. Here at Crosswinds Church, we try our hardest to remain faithful to God's word, to turn people's eyes and hearts and affections to Jesus. We're not perfect at it, but it's our hope every single Sunday that your heart is turned to Jesus. And so ask yourself, how do I identify a gospel-centered teacher? Ask yourself this question, do they turn my eyes to Jesus Or do they turn my eyes to the things that the world loves? It's our prayer that we as a church would be gospel-centered. That we would not pervert the gospel like this false gospel does. So that's our first area of perversion, the gospel. Second area is this. We see a perversion of faith. A perversion of faith. Romans chapter 3, we just read it earlier, talks about the gospel. Romans 3 mentions the importance of faith. It also describes what this faith really is. Starting in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Throughout the ages, the church has believed that faith, this idea of having faith, is primarily centered on one thing, and that is a trust in Christ. A trust in Christ and a trust in his work for us on the cross. That's what Romans is talking about when it says that this righteousness is attainable through faith. It means that the righteousness of God is a gift to us that we can receive by trusting in Jesus, by trusting in what Jesus has done for us. But the prosperity gospel teaches us something different. The prosperity gospel 
is, can be summed up in this quote from a teacher. It says this, the faith is a spiritual force, a spiritual energy, a spiritual power. It is this force of faith which makes the laws of the spirit world function. There are certain laws governing prosperity revealed in God's word. Faith causes them to function. And if you make up your mind that you are willing to live in divine prosperity and abundance, divine prosperity will come to pass in your life. You have now exercised your faith. No mention of Jesus there. No mention of what Jesus has done on the cross. Instead, we see faith as a spiritual force in this false gospel. The emphasis is no longer on Jesus and is instead on us exerting our wills upon God. Another false teacher says this, I have faith for I am a believer. I believe I receive my healing and my faith makes me whole. The power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in me. My faith puts that power into active operation in my body. Disease has no choice. There is no chance for its survival in my body. That power flowing in me makes me whole. I am free. I am entirely free from sickness and disease. I am whole. I believe I have received my healing and my faith has made me whole. This is a view of faith that is nothing like what Christians are supposed to believe. In fact, the prosperity gospel, their, their false view of faith really boils down to one issue. They, they take faith from being something that is focused on the object. So when we say we have faith in Jesus, that means that we are placing our trust in Jesus. Jesus is the object of our faith, and that's what matters according to Christian teaching. So they're taking that And they're saying, what matters is not the object or who you have faith in, but instead what matters is how much faith you have. They substitute object for quantity. This comes from a misreading of Matthew 17. Matthew 17, Jesus said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. Jesus is not saying that if you have the quantity that amounts to one size of a mustard seed, whatever that means, how can you measure that amount of faith? That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that you will receive whatever you want if you can just muster up this much faith. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying it doesn't matter how much faith you have. You can be weak in your faith. You can be strong in your faith. It does not matter because your faith does not save you. The one you have faith in is the one who saves you. This is missing in the prosperity gospel because Jesus is missing. So the first perversion is the gospel. The second is faith. The third one would be the cross. The third perversion is the cross. Specifically, They pervert what Jesus has done on the cross. These teachers will claim physical healing and material wealth are available at the cross. Two quotes for us this morning. First uh, one is this. The basic principle of the Christian life is to know that God put our sin, sickness, disease, sorrow, grief, and poverty on Jesus at Calvary. Another one says this, and, and to do this, I think he had to just completely forget what the Bible said. He says this, Jesus had a nice house, a big house. Jesus was handling big money, and Jesus wore designer clothes. 
This man has no way to reconcile that statement with the way the Bible describes Jesus as a man who had no place to lay his head, as a man who was supported financially by others, as a man who, yes, had a nice tunic, but it was only one, and it wasn't extravagant. So where does this false teaching of the cross come from, where healing and wealth are found in the cross? Well, it comes from a misreading, a misunderstanding of Isaiah 53 and of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Notice that last phrase. And with his wounds we are healed. 2 Corinthians 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So Isaiah 53, they claim, teaches that we are healed because of the cross. And for 2 Corinthians 8, they say it means that we will be guaranteed money because of the cross. But is that actually what these two passages are teaching us? Well, if we look at the context, if we look at what Isaiah is actually trying to say, and then again, if we look at what Matthew is trying to say when he quotes Isaiah, and what Peter is trying to say when he quotes Isaiah, all of this is not focusing on physical healing right now in this life. It is instead focusing on the healing from sin. Yes, there will one day be a day when God takes all of our diseases and gives us a resurrected body. But right now, he has given us redemption in his son on the cross. In the same way, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is not at all arguing for wealth being now given to us because of Jesus' work on the cross. He's instead referring to the incarnation. The fact that Jesus left heaven for us that we might be able to attain it. Context is key in understanding these passages. You see, let me be clear. God still works in miracles. God still provides healing in miraculous ways. We absolutely believe that as a church. Indeed, the New Testament is filled with passages where we are told to pray with an eager expectation that God will bring healing for us. And honestly, sometimes I feel like we as a church, we have a lot to learn from those passages. A lot to learn from this eager expectation to pray for healing. Yes, John chapter 11, Jesus weeps over the death of Lazarus. And the reason why he weeps is because he sees the effect of sin, of death, and it grieves his heart. And in the same way, when God sees all of the effects of sin, when God sees death and sickness... It grieves his heart. And yes, one day God will come and heal us of all of our infirmities. But that's in the new heavens and the new earth. And it's not yet. You see, God is completely sovereign. God is completely in charge. He's completely trustworthy. And in his infinite wisdom, God has chosen to allow things to remain broken but not completely. We see an inbreaking of the kingdom of God where healing has begun, 
where redemption has begun, and it gives us a taste of what is to come. So that's the third perversion, the cross. Fourth, we see a perversion of giving, a perversion of giving. What, why is it that God calls us to be gracious as Christians? Why is it that giving is such a good indication of spiritual maturity or immaturity in the Christian life? Because honestly, that's how God treated us. If we look at the Old Testament and we look at the New Testament, we see that God's love is solely relying on mercy. There's no other reason for God's love for us but his mercy. And because of that, every single aspect of his love, in every single way, it is unconditional for us. God loves us and God gives to us and God forgives us unconditionally. There are no strings attached when it comes to God. For us, as we give back to God, it is a response in gratitude. And we respond with that same type of unconditional love, that same type of unconditional giving, and that same type of unconditional forgiving when people sin against us. But the prosperity gospel has an obsessive emphasis on giving. In fact, it seems like they look at God almost as if he's a principle. That if we sow, if we give, then we are guaranteed to receive. One scholar describes it this way. He says this, Prosperity teachers often promote a give-to-get mentality. All that believers need to do is sow a seed of faith. That is, they need to donate money to the ministry, and then God will bless their marriages. God will bless their finances. God will bless whatever other help is desired. Within the prosperity system, the goal is in giving is ultimately to serve oneself instead of others. I want to share a local example, and, and I don't share this as um, a, a criticism necessarily of the Dream Center itself. I, I think it does a lot of good work, um, but, but it was... J- It's a perfect example of what this kind of giving looks like. Last November, the Dream Center had a banquet. It was a banquet to raise money for the Dream Center. Again, so thankful for that ministry and the way it helps people in our community. But this fundraiser was the exact opposite of biblical giving. The guest speaker at this banquet mentioned nothing of giving to the poor or giving to the church as a response of gratitude to what God has done for us. There was no mention of unconditional giving. There was no mention of Jesus in Luke chapter 6 saying that we should give, expecting nothing in return. Over and over, those who were in attendance were told and promised, if we give, then God will give back to us. If we give, we will receive. God will bless our marriages. God will bless our finances. God will bless our jobs. God will bless every single thing that we touch, but only if we sow a seed and only if we give radically. Now, here's the thing about that. There's a kernel of truth there. There's a kernel of truth which makes this so appealing because, indeed, when we are faithful to God, God has his hand of blessing upon us. 
But that doesn't mean that that's the reason why we are called to give as Christians. In fact, when I heard this, I was absolutely shocked. I was dumbfounded because this was the exact opposite of the gospel. The exact opposite of the gospel where God gives unconditionally to us, expecting nothing in return. And this man is saying, if we give, we will receive. The motivation for giving is not gratitude. The motivation for giving is for us to bless ourselves. This is self-serving. This is coercive. And frankly, this is heretical. It takes our eyes off of God and places them on ourselves. And it's all too common in prosperity circles. First, the, the fifth perversion is this. We see this perversion of the Bible. A perversion of the Bible. Prosperity teachers claim that they only are teaching what the Bible says. Last week I was actually listening to the sermon of a prosperity teacher here in northwest Iowa. They are here. Um, this teacher guaranteed obedience, or excuse me, guaranteed prosperity if we are obedient to God. And they went through passage after passage after passage, completely ripped them out of context, and said, after every single passage, this is just what the Bible says. This isn't what I'm saying. This is what the Bible is saying. You see, this type of preaching, this type of teaching claims to be based off the Bible, but it is highly subjective and it is highly poor in in understanding the the key to understanding the Bible. And that is this. We have to know what the author was originally trying to say. An example of this. 3 John verse 2 says this. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. This is an introduction to a letter where the Apostle John is just praying and, and saying, you know what, I hope that you are flourishing, that God has his hand of blessing upon you, that he is watching over you, that you are growing as a church body. Okay, so that's what Paul is trying, or excuse me, what John is trying to say in this letter. Prosperity teachers will take 3 John verse 2, and they will actually use the King James or the New King James, and, uh, which says something like this, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper and that, all, that you may be in good, well, good health as your soul prospers. The word prosper, back in the 1600s, when the King James Version of the Bible was written, means something different than it does today. But that doesn't matter to prosperity teachers. They will say, this says prosper. That means prosperity. That means that God is guaranteeing your prosperity. That God wants you wealthy. Terrible way of reading the Bible. And yet it's all too common. Indeed, for these people, they have to ignore literally thousands of verses of the Bible that focus on suffering, that focus on brokenness. They have to ignore entire books of the Bible like Job. And they have to make up things about Jesus being rich in his life. They have to ignore the big picture of the Bible. God did not come to give us everything we want, but God came to purchase a people for himself. That's the key to the gospel. These people claim that they're teaching what the Bible says, but honestly, they do the exact opposite. And they pervert the Bible in doing so. Last one. 
we see a perversion of the kingdom of God. A perversion of the kingdom of God. They confuse Jesus' establishment of his kingdom right here and right now with the fully realized establishment of his kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. This was actually the problem that was taking place in Corinth in the first century. The church in Corinth was so focused on the fact that Jesus was coming back as a conquering king that they forgot that Jesus was also a suffering servant. This is why the church in Corinth struggled so much with Paul. They didn't think that Paul could be an apostle because he suffered. They didn't think that Paul could be an apostle because he was poor. Instead, they were drawn to false apostles who were rich and powerful because that's what they thought that the kingdom was supposed to be like. Paul's response is so clear and powerful. He just points out that we as Christians, we, yes, worship a God who is coming back as a conquering king. But he was also a crucified Messiah. And so Paul aligns himself, aligns his suffering, his poverty with this crucified Jesus. That's what 2 Corinthians 11 and 12 are all about. He's talking about boasting in his weakness. Verse 30 of chapter 11, he says this, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Being a Christian does not mean that you are powerful. It means that you follow Jesus, who was crucified on the cross. As Christians, we live in the tension of the already and the not yet. God's kingdom is already here. It will not be conquered. It will grow and it will last. But we also live in the not yet. Our world is still broken. We still suffer. We still see people get sick and die. We still may experience a time when we don't have enough money. God's kingdom is not yet fully here. It's a perversion of the kingdom of God. The prosperity gospel is dangerous. This word of faith movement is dangerous. It takes the beautiful story of the gospel, the beautiful story of God's unconditional, unmerited love for us, and turns it into a lie that focuses on us, turns it into a lie that preys on the poor and the vulnerable. Again, those who are closest to God's heart. So, how do we move forward? How do we move forward? A few years ago, Crystal and I were worshiping at a church in a remote village of, of East Africa. And the pastor there, just a wonderful, humble man, uh, he was, you know, on the verge of poverty. And so he spent a great deal of his time actually farming a 100 foot by 100 foot plot of land that would provide food for his family of six, in addition to pastoring this church. I remember he uh, mentioned that his family doesn't get to eat meat very often, if at all. And yet when Crystal and I were there for lunch, he uh, gave us both generous portions of chicken for us to enjoy. It was a sacrificial way of serving us. I remember that during the service, while, while I was preaching, I noticed there was someone uh, in the congregation who was, he, he just stuck out to me. And he was well-dressed. And he was a very, very charismatic, well-liked, kind of friendly personality. And I asked a friend of mine from Africa who was familiar with that village and, and asked him about this man. And he said uh, he actually just moved to town 
um, to the village not too long before that. He wasn't the pastor. He wasn't in any sort of official capacity at the church, but he wanted to be. Indeed, that's why he was drawing so many people to him. I thought that was interesting, but I didn't think much of it. After the service, we went to this pastor's house. We were having lunch with him, and the, the house was right next to the church. And afterward, we heard a lot of commotion outside, right outside the church. So we poked our heads out to see what was going on. And uh, there were still people gathered after the service, and, and we saw that there was this man, uh, the one that I had noticed in the middle of the service, and, and he began talking. And he began saying that he had become a Christian recently, and that once he became a Christian, he decided that it was time to give his entire life to God. And so he gave sacrificially to the church. He sowed money. He sowed this seed, and God was blessing him with great prosperity. In fact, he said that he was in just a few weeks going to be going on a Scandinavian cruise in Jesus' name. That's a very interesting way of saying it. A Scandinavian cruise on, in Jesus' name. This man continued, he was saying that if we wanted to be blessed in the same way, all we had to do was give sacrificially. Weren't the people sick of being stuck in that village, stuck in poverty? Weren't the people sick of dealing with sickness? Didn't the people want more happiness in their lives? All they had to do was give. And he started taking an offering right there. I looked at my friend uh, from Africa and just kind of shocked. And I said, what, what is going on here? And he said, this kind of thing happens all too often because the church isn't educated enough to know the difference. The prosperity gospel is dangerous. It's dangerous here in the United States. It's in California, Texas, Illinois, North Carolina, everywhere. It's even here in Northwest Iowa. It's dangerous, but it is infinitely worse in the developing nations. It's one thing to tell someone who makes $24,000 a year to give sacrificially so that God will bless them. It's another thing to tell that to someone who lives on $2 a day. And this is coming from America. The prosperity gospel is coming from America and our nation is crippling the church around the globe. So how do we respond? First, we need to repent. We need to repent. You'll notice I didn't mention any names this morning. I did that intentionally. I could have named names. I don't want to because I think that each and every one of us has to wrestle with the reality that the prosperity gospel is alive and well within our own hearts. Humans have a tendency to drift toward the prosperity gospel. It's because the prosperity gospel is conventional wisdom. If we do good, then we will be rewarded. If we do bad, then we will get punished. That's what the prosperity gospel essentially says, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible tells us that the fall, that sin, has permeated all of creation and all of us are affected by its consequences. And yet the gospel tells us that God broke through conventional wisdom. 
God did not give good to those who were good and bad to those who were bad. God broke into our world. And he gave good to those who were undeserving. That's what Romans chapter 5 tells us when Paul says, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Praise God that conventional wisdom is not true. Praise God that the prosperity gospel is not true. You see, this gospel, this false gospel, rears its ugly head in our own lives, and we think that we are entitled to the good life or to the American dream. I know it happens way too often to me that I get mad when I, or jealous when I see other people living this certain style of life, and I, I get mad because I think that I have that right too. I have a right to happiness, to health, to money, to get myself by. R.C. Sproul, a famous theologian, says that all of us really believe in the prosperity gospel because we get mad when a good gift is taken from us. We feel entitled to the good life as Christians. Excuse me, as, as Americans, but as Christians, we are called to repent. So let us repent of the prosperity gospel in our own hearts. Now, to be clear, that's not saying that we should give all of our money away by any means. We see in Scripture a biblical principle that wealth and possessions are a good, wonderful gift of God, but we must be weary that they do not become idols. So first thing is to repent. The second thing is to repent again. Some of us here probably need to repent of a man-centered gospel. I know I oftentimes have to repent of this. Repent of a desire to dethrone God and place myself on his throne. To make the Bible all about us. Humans are narcissists by nature. We have a tendency to place ourselves at the center of the gospel. To take the story of redemption and make it about us. About what God can do for us. About what God can do to help us make our, get to receive our wants. But that's not the glorious truth of the gospel. God is the center of the gospel. So let us focus on his righteousness, his mercy, and his grace. Third and finally, let us guard our hearts. Let us guard our hearts. We must be weary. We must be on guard. It is so easy for us to be deceived when our hearts are hearing exactly what they want to hear. This is not something that's just theoretical or not just something that's on TV or across the ocean. I want to read an excerpt to you from a recent sermon preached here in Northwest Iowa from a prosperity teacher. They said this, do you want the world envying you? I want them trying to figure out why I'm so blessed and what's behind that. And I want to tell them Jesus. As soon as he came into my life and I realized that there were blessings available to me, if I just do what the word says to do, it will work for me and it will work for you. If you are not being blessed by God, then examine your hearts. The focus of this sermon was on the way that we grow in prosperity and we are given much because of obedience to God. It's works righteousness. It's not the gospel. What's more, it's not what attracts people to the church. Prosperity does not draw people to Jesus. 
It draws people to Jesus' gifts. It draws people into idolatry. The original catalyst for church growth in the 100s and 200s of church history was not prosperity, but it was sacrificial service. In the 100s and 200s, there were a number of plagues that were all across the Roman Empire. It was a terrible time. People would have to abandon their families. Husbands would leave their wives. Wives would leave their husbands. And they would all leave their children to remain sick so that they would die and that they would be safe. No one would take care of the poor and of the sick. Except for Christians. Except for Christians. They gave their lives to care for the sick. They gave their lives to care for the poor. It wasn't their prosperity that drew people to Jesus and the church. It was their service. Friends, the reality is the world will not be drawn to Jesus by prosperity. It will be drawn to Jesus by forsaking prosperity for something better. If we look at the Bible and we see what, what possessions are worth in the Bible, they're of zero value. It just doesn't matter to God. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. He wants you focused on him. That's the gospel. To respond in gratitude to a God who came and gave us everything when we deserved nothing. So let us guard our hearts. Let us treasure Christ. Because God is the greatest blessing of the gospel. Not his gifts. Let's pray. God, we are so humbled by the idea that you came for us. That you died for us. That you made a way for us. And I just want to confess right now the times where I fall victim to believing in the prosperity gospel. Where I believe that my good works will earn more favor from you. Forgive me, God. Forgive me for thinking that I am entitled to certain things just because I'm an American. Father, I ask that we would be a church that is gospel-centered. A church that is focused on you. And a church that serves our community sacrificially. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.